well, that's, you know, my, my embittered side that I'm losing people to Janice's Sunday school class. We're in competition with each other. <laughs> All right, well, we've been in a series on theology, um, and uh, just uh, studying uh, some basic uh, Bible teachings. Well, some of them might go deeper than basic. Um, we've uh, been in the first unit of that, or the first segment, the uh, doctrine of God. We're going to deviate a little bit, although maybe not so much, and it still kind of feels like doctrine of God. Um, it, if you get into the book I'm using, Systematic Theology, and I think sometimes, you know, some of these things kind of start getting technical, and I'm not always a big fan of getting too technical on it. Um, but if you want to be technical in systematic theology, they, they break up doctrine of God often from uh, doctrine of Christ. But we recognize, and, and the book recognizes it and fully supports the, the Trinity. Jesus is God, so um, we're still in the doctrine of God because I'm going to deviate a little bit uh, because of thinking about today. I thought, you know, I'm tempted to jump out of order and go to a different spot in the book that has to do with uh, Easter. And so we're going to do a little bit of an Easter message. I don't always do that. Um, I don't always, I don't, I don't feel obligated in Sunday school to try to match Sunday school with whatever particular holidays uh, going on. Uh, but I uh, did desire to do that uh, for today. And so we've actually skipped um, out of order and are going to a lesson on the atonement. Now, recently we've had um, actually a number of sermons. Um, pastors been going through the tabernacle, and uh, the atonement, of course, is a major part of the message of that. I don't think, though, even though the topic's the same, I think a lot of the, the discussion that we have this morning probably will enhance that and go with it. It won't duplicate it. Um, I don't think I would have been tempted to um, do this lesson if it was just simply a repeat of what Pastor has recently taught in church. Um, it does it a little bit more from the standpoint of the systematic theology that we're looking at, as opposed to a study of the tabernacle, even though the topic uh, is the same. All right, so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to start off uh, with a study in the atonement of Christ, and then um, as part of that, um, we uh, have a little bit of some slides that look a little bit at Easter geography or some of the geography and verses of the Easter message. We don't have um, a regular Sunday school next week. And um, at first I was forgetting that, and I was thinking I might do the atonement today and then talk more about the resurrection of Christ next Sunday. And then I thought, well, as far as I'm concerned, as a Sunday school teacher, there is no next Sunday, uh, no, no next Sunday Sunday school, that is. All right, well, that's what, uh, just kind of getting your uh, brain in gear here, uh, get our mental juices flowing. You might be thinking to yourself, actually, probably aren't thinking to yourself, my mental juices aren't flowing. Has anyone brain nodding gear? Did I? Did someone just tune me out for all of it? Don't raise your hand. Okay. All right. If I did like I do with the students when I'm teaching, sometimes I have to go like, hey, yeah. I do some loud, unusual noise because my voice when I was like, hey, hello, hey, focus here, and someone's still daydreaming. Some unusual noise. Oh, all of a sudden, okay, woke them up. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, don't be a teacher if you don't want to uh, be ignored frequently. Um, <laughs> So that's what I found. Um, uh, don't be a teacher if you don't want to find that you're talking to yourself sometimes. 
I'll, I'll be saying stuff. Oh, the, one of the great ones as a teacher is when a student, a student asks me a question, I proceed to start answering the question, and then I realize that they're not listening to me. <laughs> it's not been unusual that I just, and I'm usually dealing with the high schoolers, junior hires, it's not been unusual for me that they're, they ask me a question, I start answering it, and then I realize they've turned to their neighbor and they're doing something. I just, I stop. I don't answer. Sometimes they'll come back later and ask me a, <laughs> the question. And, or as I did to one of the high schoolers not long ago, um, he, he was, didn't even realize I was, I was talking about him, so I started going on about him. I, and I was calling him by name. Uh, you know, so I won't say his name, uh, but I'll, I'll just pretend it's Bob. And I, I just went on and on about Bob. So Bob doesn't even realize I'm talking to him right now. He doesn't realize that I was trying to answer his question. So here's Bob talking to someone. And I went on like that for a while. He had no clue. And he, and he was sitting right there. He was very far from me. I told him about it later because I was just doing it as a joke. Um, so I also figure if you... Oh, no, no, not Zach. Uh, Zach was the model student. Okay? So that, never him. <laughs> All right. Well, anyways, I figure if I can't have fun with a student even give them a hard time, what's the point of being a teacher? Um, so, anyways. Well, we'll go ahead and uh, now that I, uh, I helped you wake up, but let's assume you were the model student like Zach. You were with me the whole time anyways. You actually didn't need any of that, and your brain's in gear already without even uh, being told. You know, it's pretty bad. I can sympathize with students because I have a hard time. My mind wanders. I'm, I'm in the church service, and... It doesn't take that much. Um, often it works this way in my mind. Pastor will say something that triggers a thought. And the next thing I know, I realize I've been thinking about that thought for a while. I didn't even know how long I've been thinking about it. I didn't hear a word he said. And I'm not sure how long I didn't hear a word he said. So, I, I, I mean, it could be large portions of time. I could be sitting there five or ten minutes thinking about whatever thought got triggered by something. I'm like, ah, don't, don't, refocus, get on track. So I sympathize with you if you have the same problem I do. All right, well, we'll get going today on, on today's lesson. So again, we're looking at the atonement uh, first, and then we'll look at some Easter geography uh, second. Um, but the bulk of our study will be on the atonement. Okay, so we're going to look today at four aspects of the atonement. Um, our first aspect will be the cause of the atonement. Okay, point number one on our first... Uh, content slide here. All right, so the cause. What was the ultimate cause? Like, um, first, by the way, maybe we should in, uh, provide maybe a little bit of thought on atonement. Uh, what's going to atone or make up for or pay for sins? Okay, so when we speak of atonement, we'll see a lot of aspects of the atonement come out, so I'm not going to try to provide a longer definition or discussion of atonement right now because it's going to come out as we talk about it. Uh, but uh, it's you know, very pertinent uh, with Easter, because uh, Christ's death on the cross is what provided atonement for sin. And that, of course, was um, predated the Easter resurrection on that Sunday morning. And so um, the atonement then is uh, very relevant to the Easter message. All right, so what was the cause of the atonement? Um, what caused it, what, what necessitated it. I, I shouldn't use the word necessi necessitate because uh, that's kind of the next point. Was it necessary? But what was the cause? 
And it's interesting that we've had a study in the character of God already because the cause really uh, pours forth out of the character of God. Uh, The cause is really two thoughts. God's love, so God's a God of love, and he's a God of justice. Okay, so if we boil down the the cause, what, what caused atonement to happen in the first place? Those two things, without both of them being true about God, the atonement may have never happened. Okay? Uh, we know from the scripture that um, the penalty of sin is death. Um, it's, it's the earned, um, or you could say merited, um, end result of mankind's sin. And you were told that in the book of Romans, uh, for example, Romans 6.23, that that's the wages of sin, uh, what you earn by sinning. The wages of sin is death. And so... Um, Death is something that we all deserve and we've all, in a sense, um, automatically inherited as, as a penalty of our sin. Um, if, uh, if God were not a God of love, then he wouldn't have had that motive to desire to save us from that penalty of sin. So that's one of you know, the major causes. Um, the atonement happened because God is a God of love. But then you have the second aspect, the God of justice. By the way, John 3.16, amongst many verses in the Bible, express that truth. But I'm guessing that many of us in here have John 3.16 memorized. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So that, that was the, the cause, the reason, God's love for the world. Okay, now, if that was the only attribute involved in in the decision there, um, well, let me reword that. Um, if God were not a God of justice, then you might be able to have mankind be saved from the penalty of sin without the other one being a factor. But the other one is a factor in the atonement, and that is the God is a God of justice. Um, much like we would, in fact, we're funny as humans, we, we sometimes apply our logic and thinking in certain situations And in others, we want to let it go or not apply it. Uh, Like, for example, um, we all have a tendency to look favorably on ourselves. Now, let's go back in our minds when we were kids. We frequently saw the, and we might do this as adults, but let's pretend that's not the case. As kids, we frequently found the the fault in another um, person, but we didn't quite so quickly see it in ourselves. I did that once. Um, we were over at, um, we used to do a family friend gathering. There was four families that would get together. Uh, we called it a get-together. We would have a get-together once every uh, three months and go to a different family's house and just have a night, games and stuff, fellowship. And, and so we would do that um, you know, four times a year with the four families. And I remember once, uh, and I don't know how old I was, but I was pretty young, typical kid, um, I saw some. I saw one of the other kids not closing their eyes when they were praying. When we were all praying, so I'm like, "Hey, they didn't close their eyes." And so, and one adult said, "How did you know?" Ah! <laughs> Caught. <laughs> yeah, so quick to uh, <laughs> point that. I, it hadn't even occurred to me yet. I mean, obviously, I had my eyes open, but I wasn't thinking about the fact I was looking around. I just saw them not looking around. Um, typical human uh, nature. Uh, sometimes we might, you know, recognize like you know, we, someone who committed a crime. If a judge just said, Psh, "Yeah, let you go," 
We don't need to punish that. The community would at large have a problem with that if, if it was a crime that the community at large deemed that it should be addressed or punished in some way. Now, our community or our nation seems to be um, kind of waffling on certain crimes, whether they should be punished or not, or should be addressed or not. Um, but there are some crimes I think uh, pretty much almost everyone in the community, uh, at least those that care anything about justice would, like, you know, like a murder or a rape or something, uh, we would not want to say, oh, well, oh, good for that judge that he showed compassion for the criminal and just decided not to punish him at all and let him go. Um, now, what happens in our mind is sometimes we have a tendency to, to do that with the bad stuff, but maybe on the little stuff, uh, we don't see a need for justice. Um, on smaller scales, we might say, ah, it's not that big a deal. Um, but God is a God of justice, and so that plays into the atonement because sin needs to be addressed. It needs, it needs to be uh, taken care of. The, the just punishment for the sin needs to happen. If it doesn't, then he's not a God of justice. Or as uh, Grudem in the Systematic Theology book says, but the justice of God also required that God find a way that the penalty due to us for our sin would be paid. For he could not uh, accept us into fellowship with himself unless the penalty was paid. Paul explains that, uh, explains that this is why God sent Christ to be a, quote, propitiation, um, a key word in Romans chapter 3, verse uh, 25. Now, uh, uh, he goes on to uh, describe propitiation, that is, a sacrifice that bears God's wrath so that God becomes propitious or favorably disposed towards it. So uh, how can God, as the judge, make sure that justice has happened, but he is able to still look favorably towards us and allow us to have life. Okay? And that's what the atonement is about, of course. Now we're going to look at Romans 3.25, if you have a Bible and want to follow along. Uh, take a look at that, because we're going to look at four different words in Romans 3.25 uh, that share some thoughts um, regarding uh, this concept um, that God's uh, justice is part of the cause of the atonement and some thoughts that relate to that. So Romans 3.25 says, Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of Christ. And so in this verse, it shows God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Now, I'm not sure if I had had this thought before when I was you know, reading and studying for this, um, really thought about, I mean, I, I know it's true. I mean, the thought was there. I'm just talking about the, the clear conscious thought that God had passed over previous sins. Prior to the death of Christ, he had passed over them and had not really demanded justice on them. Like sins had happened without justice happening at that particular time. Now, uh, I don't want to get off on this thought, but God, you know, in the mind of God, though, justice was going to be happening. Justice was applied backwards, you know, to those sins. So justice still happened. But uh, Romans 3.25 actually touches on this. If we read that again, if I can paraphrase it uh, and maybe uh, add words of clarification, much like the Amplified Bible does. I don't know if you've ever read the Amplified Bible, but it it puts lots of little phrases of clarification after things, so I may do that here. 
Um, so uh, Romans 3.25, whom God hath, speaking of Jesus Christ, set forth to be a propitiation, uh, that is someone that paid the penalty uh, for our sins, did that through faith in his blood, which we'll come back and maybe touch on his blood a little bit later, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins, or that is, and we'll see this, I'll come back to this in a moment, I'll repeat it, toleration of sins, which is what the word remission uh, means. Um, So declaring his righteousness for the tolerance of sins that are in the past, that have already happened, uh, through the forbearance of God, or the, the patience of God here. Okay. So we're going to take a look at some of those words and uh, just think about these a little bit uh, more. Um, we have um, here, let's see, actually, there it is. Okay, I was, I was trying to find the word declare and I wasn't finding it at first. Yeah, through that God has declared this to be. Now when I think of the word declare, I don't know what you think of automatically. I know I think of a verbal declaration, so saying something out loud, uh, which is... It can be the uh, aspect or thing here, but this particular word um, in the Greek um, is defined as an indication. So it doesn't have to be a verbal indication, and it's translated in the Bible, um, uh, in in some translations, uh, as an evident token or a proof or a declaration. And so here, an evident token or a proof of his righteousness Okay, so his righteousness is at stake here. And someone might say, you weren't a righteous God. You let past sins go unpunished. Uh, you tolerated those past sins uh, without demanding justice when they happened. Well, he is making a proof or an t- evident token of his righteousness in this. Now, what's going to be the evident token or proof of his righteousness? Well, it's Jesus' propitiation, um, his atonement on the cross. Okay? Now, the word propitiation, I'll provide a little bit more info on that one. Um, my definitions, unless I say otherwise, are coming from Strong's Concordance, but I am going to reference uh, Thayer's Greek Dictionary um, on propitiation here in a moment. But this comes from Strong's, an expiatory and then they put in parentheses, an expiatory place or an expiatory thing. Okay, Now, if you're like me, that's not a common word in my vocabulary. I don't go around using the word expiatory, nor do I go around using the word propitiation uh, much. In fact, when I think about these things, um, I often have to think about them to, to remind myself what these words mean, even though I've heard them uh, much of my life, but I just don't use them often enough that they stick in my mind uh, readily with one exception, and there's one here that maybe it'll help you, I I have to go in my mind back to a particular illustration of it that reminds me of what it's about. And we'll get to that in a moment when I quote Thayer's um, dictionary. But it's an expiatory thing, so since that's not readily known, actually Strong's goes on and, and says that is, here's some further explanation, concretely an atoning victim or specifically the lid of the ark in the temple. Translated, this particular word translated, propitiation, is also translated as mercy seat in the Bible. And so we're going to associate the word propitiation with the mercy seat. It's the same thing. 
the, the mercy seat is the propitiation. And there's the symbol that, that I try to get in my mind to remind myself what propitiation is about. I just need to think about the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant that was in the Holy of Holies. And that's, of course, one of the ties we've had where pastors gone over that symbol and talked about it recently. We're not going to spend a lot of time on that particular uh, symbol. But let me read from Thayer on propitiation. He says this. Um, it's, just a, it's just a different dictionary. It's like having Merriam-Webster you know, versus Cambridge Dictionary. And so uh, a man named Thayer has another Greek dictionary. And he says this about the word propitiation. It's used of the cover of the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, which was sprinkled with the blood of the expiatory victim. And later, Grudem uses the word vicar on this. So I'll come back when I read something on that. Uh, I don't know if the word vicar is familiar to you. When I think of the word victor, um, interesting enough, as a non-Catholic, I actually think of the Pope because of a common saying about the Pope. Uh, that the Pope is Christ's vicar on earth. Now, I don't believe that that's true. I think that's a, a false teaching. Uh, but that's what's commonly he's described as, as, as in the Pope is, uh, lost my spot here, um, he, he is, oh, okay, actually I'll define that later, but he is like the substitute or representative of. So let me go back and think about this expiatory victim, this vicar, this substitute, on the annual day of atonement, this religious rite <clears throat> or a religious ceremony signifying that the life of the people, um, the loss of which life they had merited or earned as a consequence of their sins, was offered to God in the blood as the life of the victim, and that God by this ceremony was appeased by their sins, uh, thus expiated. Hence the lid of the expiation the propitiatory. And so that mercy seat became the place where instead of our blood being offered as a punishment of sin, a substitutionary victim's blood was offered in our place. And so that's what a propitiation is. Propitiation describes that spot where this happens. So the word not only refers to the mercy seat or the lid of the Ark of the Covenant where the two cherubim's angel wings are outstretched towards each other and the high priest would sprinkle the blood on the space that was between the two, that became the location where expiation was happening or propitiation. They're, they're both, the words mean the same thing. Okay. So the propitiation of our sins, that is the substitute that someone else's blood uh, was required if our blood wasn't going to be there. And so we read in this verse, whom God hath, God hath set forth, speaking of Jesus, to be the propitiation through faith in the blood, uh, substitute in our place. Okay? So according to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, expiated means to make amends for, to extinguish the guilt incurred by. Of course, expiation is an English word. So sometimes it's helpful just to look at an English dictionary, what we tend to mean by the English word expiation that's based upon the Greek word. Okay, so again, uh, Merriam-Webster defines it as to make amends for. Like we've sinned, we owe a penalty of that. We, we deserve, maybe I shouldn't say owe, but we deserve that penalty. And yet um, our sins are able to be made amends for it to extinguish the guilt incurred by 
yet it's not our own blood that ends up doing that. Now, a person can pay for their own sins, but that's to receive the punishment of that, which is death. And eternal death, which is the second death the Bible describes, requires us to be in hell, uh, to, to have eternal separation from God, that second death. Okay. So in this, um, in this verse, then, we'll take a look at um, another word there. It's the word remission. I already defined that for us. It's the word toleration. Uh, that's literally how... Strong's Concordance defines the word remission, that when God had the remission of sins, he had the tolerance of them. Okay? And then the, the fourth word that I'm going to look at in the verse is the word past, which we've already kind of described as well, having previously transpired. So if we look at that verse again, and this is all going back uh, to the cause of the atonement. Why, why, why did, what caused it? What caused it was the character of God. He loved us. But he was just. He could not let sin go without justice happening. Therefore, there was this uh, way of justice happening, which was the atonement. And again, Romans 3.23 is really provided to describe the fact that there were these sins that had passed that had not been atoned for, that, that um, this verse expresses that the purpose of the propitiation is to cover those. Okay, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation, that is an atoning victim. Jesus was set forth through faith in his blood to declare um, his righteousness, God's righteousness for those tolerated sins of the past through the forbearance or patience of God. Okay, so now we're going to move on, but comments and questions are welcome to interrupt at any time. I'm I'm someone who doesn't mind being interrupted. That's at, at any moment. Although I might ignore your raised hand for a little bit to try to finish a thought or a sentence. So as long as you'll tolerate that in me, we'll be good. Our next point on the slide, the necessity. So what caused the atonement, but what made the atonement necessary? Now really, I think the thought behind this is, was there another way to do it besides the atonement? Was the atonement really necessary, or were there alternatives besides that? So it almost might sound at first that the necessity and cause are the same thing. You know, what caused it was its necessity, but was it really necessary? Okay. Um, so, Agrino makes a point that it was not necessary for God to save anyone. Now, this is also in human thinking. I don't think we always think this way. I mean, I know we don't, because I've heard Bible-believing Christians, um, myself included, wrestling with the thought. That is almost that God had an obligation to save people. Here's a common one that might be there. Uh, someone might say, it doesn't seem fair that the Native American Indians in South America went thousands of years with no one having access to the Bible or hearing uh, the gospel message. So would God really send them to hell for when they never had the opportunity to hear the Bible? Well, behind that, if we stop and think about it, we're thinking that it doesn't sound right because they deserve a chance. Uh-uh. None of us deserve a chance at salvation. And that's one thing he points out. He says it this way. It was not necessary for God to save anyone. So when we're talking about is it necessary, was it, God, was it necessary that God offered it to him? The answer is no. He did not have to do that. He was not under any obligation uh, to do that. Now, just a quick side thought. Now, Christians don't agree um, always on 
the answer to, you know, or that thought about maybe Native South American Indians and, and that, um, especially those that lean uh, Calvinist, if they um, lean a certain persuasion in that, I, I'm Calvinist in some ways and not in others, so I definitely don't use that word on, so I'm not completely uh, disagreement on everything that those who are Calvinist believe on certain things, but um, some would lead more heavily, like, yeah, they, you know, God was an under obligation, and uh, some of those didn't, didn't have a chance at all. Um, I look at the book of Romans chapter 1, where it says that God has given enough evidence in nature to be without excuse, that God has, God has revealed himself to those South American Indians. I don't know exactly how that would work in um, the mind of God, because uh, I think there still needs to be some sort of a coming to God for God's gift of salvation. Um, but God says, though, they were without excuse. They were given some revelation, and I, I don't know how that would look. I mean, we're not going to get into that more this morning. Um, but my point here was that God didn't have to do that at all. He's not an unjust God. In fact, um, one of the verses that uh, touches on this, uh, and I'll just uh, quote Grudem in referencing this verse, says, When we appreciate that according to Second Peter 2, verse 4, God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them in, the, in hell and committed them to pits of nether gloom to be kept until the judgment. Then we realize that God could have also chosen with perfect justice to have left us in our sins awaiting judgment. He could have chosen to save no one, just as he did with the sinful angels. So in this sense, the atonement was not absolutely necessary. And as our understanding from scripture is, uh, the fallen angels were not, you know, no, Jesus didn't die on the cross for their sins, and they were never given that opportunity. Uh, yet God is not an unjust God because of that. Um, but um, God, in his love, did decide to uh, save some. He didn't save all, because not all are going to access his gift of salvation. But uh, several passages of scripture indicate that there was no other way for God to do this. If he was going to save man, was the atonement necessary? Yes, because there was no other way that it was going to happen other than through the death of his son. So the atonement was not absolutely necessary to happen, but it was a consequence of God's decision to save some human beings because he loved them. So therefore, yes, the atonement was necessary. And uh, one verse that uh, kind of hints at this, it's right there, um, part of the, the Passion Week. I got curious about that as I thought about the term Passion Week and where that came from. And uh, I'm just kind of thinking off the top of my head, and I'm, I'm thinking now, the, the word Passion, I looked it up. I think it started to be used in the 1300s uh, in reference to uh, the Easter week. And it, w it meant sufferings. It didn't have some of the connotations we think of now especially kind of the more sensual ones if someone's passionate about something, you know, that's uh, heightening their senses or what, you know, passionate about whatever. Um, it had the idea of suffering. So the Passion Week is the week of sufferings that Christ went through, um, or if you speak of the passion of Christ on the cross, that's what it references. Um, but during that Passion Week, I thought of that because Matthew chapter 26, verse 39 Jesus says this, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, this cup of suffering that I'm about to experience in the cross, let it pass from me, if it be possible. The suggestion is it's not possible. 
not if he, and, and he goes on, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. God's will was for him to die on the cross to be the propitiation for the sins of the world. If it were possible to get out of that, if, if there was some other option, if it be possible, but the suggestion is it's not. This was the only thing that could do it, so therefore it was necessary if this was going to be done. Or Luke 24, verse 25, after Christ's resurrection, when he's speaking to the disciples on the road to the town of Emmaus, um, these disciples, he, uh, Jesus says to them when he appears with them, is talking with them and teaching them, and they don't know it's Jesus yet. He says to them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets, prophets have spoken, ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? So again, the suggestion is this, this had to happen. This is what needed to happen. Um, he had to do this. Okay? So then we'll go to our next point on the slide. Okay? The atonement, the nature of the atonement. And the nature of the atonement, first of all, has to do with Christ's obedience for us. So you can see this. We'll look at it in two respects. Christ obeyed the requirements of the law in our place and was perfectly obedient to the will of God the Father as our representative. Now, perhaps this sheds light on why that was the only option that existed. Uh, see, our, our sin broke God's law and put us in a position as lawbreakers before him that it demanded a sacrifice, a uh, punishment. Sorry, demanded a punishment is what I meant to say. Okay, so if that was going to be cleaned or wiped out or made up for, there, there had to be like full reconciliation, or that's not the word I'm looking for. It needed to be fully made right. We can't pay for our own sin because we, I mean, first of all, we sinned in the first place, but we can't really do anything to make up for that. If someone steps in our place and on our behalf, shows a life of perfectness, shows a life without sin, one that could keep God's law completely, one that could stand before God as righteous, if that person stood in our place, then that could be looked at as this has been made just now. And so Christ obeyed the law in all respects. And he did that as our representative in our place. And he was perfectly obedient to the will of the Father as our representative. I like the, um, the verse. I didn't look up this reference. I don't have it in my notes here. Uh, but it talks about the robe of righteousness that we get. And I like the song, His Robes for Mine, that we get Christ's righteousness like a robe that we can put on. So when God looks at us, he sees our representative. He sees the person that stood in our place at the mercy seat and his blood was there his life was there and so an aspect of the nature of the atonement is obedience christ obeyed fully everything and did everything the right way on our behalf now the second aspect is christ's sufferings for us uh, christ's sufferings in which he took the penalty for our sin and as a result died for our sins and so not only did he keep the law perfectly in obedience but he also paid the penalty of that sin on our behalf. And so he really covered both of that so that he, on our behalf, justice is fully happening because of that. Uh, the sufferings would include sufferings, not just suffering on the cross. That's 
obviously probably the one we think of the most. But really his whole life, I mean, he dealt with sufferings. He dealt with hunger and tiredness and things that are common sufferings of mankind. Of course, his death on the cross was suffering. Uh, the pain of bearing sin on the cross was suffering. Abandonment by God when God turned, God the Father turned his back on Christ or bearing the wrath of God, the sins of the world put upon him. Um, these were all part of that. And so his sufferings, um, he suffered for us. So um, note, a couple notes about the suffering. Uh, was, the penalty was inflicted by God the Father. Okay. This was not something the Pharisees did to I mean, the Pharisees did things to him. But when speaking of the atonement, it wasn't the Pharisees that caused the atonement or are responsible for uh, the nature of the atonement here regarding sufferings. It was God the Father that allowed for this and orchestrated this. And um, so it comes from God the Father, the penalty of our sins. Okay? And it, uh, for Christ, it was not eternal suffering. There was no way for us to make it up where it could be all over and done. Clean slate. Sometimes they do that with criminal records. Seal the records. You're considered not a criminal anymore. There was no way for us to do that. With Christ, that could be done. He didn't have to go to hell for all eternity to pay for our sins to do the same thing we would have to do. If we went to hell, there's no way for us to get out of it because there's no way for us to make it right. We, we couldn't get out of there and have justice happen. But God... God didn't need to send Jesus to hell. Now, a little side point, sometimes uh, there's been some who have uh, thought that hell, like Jesus actually went to hell, hell, um, but that's not um, the orthodox um, or standard teaching on that. The vast majority of Christians understand that um, spots where it almost looks like that, hell was a reference to the grave, that he, he died, was buried three days, and then arose from the grave. But I don't want to spend time on that thought. The blood of Christ is another aspect of this suffering. Uh, the blood of Christ is the clear outward evidence that his lifeblood was poured out when he died a sacrificial death. So it's often referenced in the scripture because the Bible says, without the cleansing of blood, sorry, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Or we define that word. You know, God's not going to tolerate or or overlook or, or forgive sin without the shedding of blood. Okay? Meaning the blood was a representative that Christ suffered for us. Their payment had happened on that. And then Christ's death is a penal substitute. I uh, just think of penal as a form like a penal colony or a penalty. It's a form of the word penalty. Christ's uh, death was a, uh, had to do with a penalty that was a substitute. Okay, so... Um, I'll read here. Christ's death was penal in that he bore a penalty when he died. His death was also a substitution in that he was a substitute for us when he died. This has been the orthodox understanding of the atonement in contrast with other views that attempt to explain the atonement apart from the idea of the wrath of God or payment for the penalty for sin. This view of atonement is sometimes called the theory of vicarious atonement. So if you're familiar with the term vicarious atonement, vicarious is that substitute uh, that um, paid the atonement in our place. If someone who stands in the place of another um, or who represents another, Christ's death was therefore vicarious because he stood in our place and represented us. As our representative, he took the penalty that we deserve. Okay, so those are thoughts on his sufferings, which of course relate to the atonement because part of that was he suffered in our place.
And then you have the last of uh, uh, four aspects of the atonement is the extent of the atonement. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on this one. We could, we could spend a lot of time. Christians have spent a lot of time on this. You might say it this way. Was the atonement limited or unlimited? Have you ever done any study on Calvinism versus Arminianism? Or another way of saying Calvinism would be uh, to talk about Reformed theology. Um, or Arminianism, um, I don't have another good word for that, except there are the, uh, many in Christianity that do not hold to some of the teachings of Reformed theology. Reformed theology, a lot of its heritage uh, traces back to John Calvin and involves um, branches of Christianity uh, that either refer to themselves as Reformed or the Presbyterian Church is tied to that branch of Christianity. Um, there are different teachings that describe Reformed theology. As I mentioned earlier, there are some of the teachings uh, that I would personally agree with. You may or may not. We'd have to actually point out the particular teaching and, and uh, whether we know we would, if we agreed. But uh, sometimes Reformed theology is described as five major points. They sometimes call it five points of Calvin or Calvinism. Uh, some people might refer to them in reference to these points. Someone might call them, I'm a five-point Calvinist, meaning I agree with all five points. Someone else might call themselves a Calvinist with fewer than five. Um, the, the one point of the five that Christians who are not five-point Calvinists, whether they agree with one, two, three, or four, if someone's going to disagree with one of the points, it's this one, because this is one of the five points. Uh, the Calvinism would state that the atonement was limited. Now, what's meant by that? Basically, it's the, and, and put it this way, the question may be put this way, Grudem says, when Christ died on the cross, did he pay for the sins of the entire human race or only for the sins of those who he knew would ultimately be saved? Now, in some respects, I think it, I don't know how much Christians need to be spending debating and fighting over it because the fact is this that all those that come to Christ in salvation are going to be saved no matter which way you believe um, but there are verses in the Bible I, I believe that clearly say that you know such as John three sixteen, he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son or in uh, I forget which one of the books of uh, Peter uh, talks about how it um, let's see um Christ died for our sins, but not for ours only, but for the sins of the world. Um, but there are verses that Calvinists would look at or Reformed theologians would look at to support their viewpoint. Again, we're not going to spend time. It's too much out of the scope of what we can do today. Uh, so I'm going to move on from that, um, except to, to state that I think um, if a non-Reformed Christianity, uh, which is, would include background of our church, there are Baptist churches that are very reformed um, would tend to say no, the extent of it, the atonement extended to all. The offers made to all. The, the uh, sacrifice of Christ on the cross was sufficient to pay for all. But then not all are going to come. So not everyone's going to be saved. Alright, we won't do more on that today, but we'll go to our next slide. Um, we'll go through this um, pretty quickly here. Um, four needs met by Christ's death. Okay, the first one um, on our list here, 
the need for a sacrifice. We've talked about that quite a bit. To pay the penalty of death that we deserve because of our sins, Christ died as a sacrifice. Uh, Hebrews 9 verse 26 is one verse uh, that mentions that. But now once in the the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. A second word here is the word propitiation. Of course, we've talked about all these, so this is kind of, you might say this slide in some ways could summarize what we've been talking about. Um, To remove us from the wrath of God that we deserve, Christ died as a propitiation for our sins. So here's one verse that touches on that. Uh, Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Then we have the word reconciliation. Another need that is met by the atonement. To overcome our separation from God, we needed someone to provide reconciliation and thereby bring us back into fellowship with God. Paul says that God has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and has given uh, to us the ministry of reconciliation that um, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself and this is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 and 19 that says that. Okay? And then lastly, the word redemption. Because we are sinners um, who are in bondage to sin and to Satan, we need someone to provide redemption and thereby redeem us out of bondage. Yeah. All right. So now I've left myself uh, five, maybe up to ten minutes at the most uh, to go into a next section, a little bit Easter geography. And... Um, well, I'm hoping that, um, well, a couple things I'm hoping. We want to learn the scriptures. Uh, the scriptures are able to uh, make us wise. The scriptures are able to help us grow in faith. And um, so perhaps that's something that we've been encouraged on uh, in today's lesson. But I also think maybe, uh, maybe it made it excited a little bit, get our juices flowing, our minds going about the Easter message um, that we have in a week. And the atonement is certainly uh, one of the teachings of scripture to get the most excited about because we'd have no hope without it. Um, but maybe a little bit of Easter geography also, you know, get us interested in thinking about Easter. Okay, um, this is not what you might call high def. Uh, some of these aren't, anyways. Um, we have here on our first slide, uh, Jerusalem under the time of Nehemiah. So it kind of shows the, uh, kind of the geography of the area there. The old city of Jerusalem, the city of David, when David was king, was much smaller than during the time of Nehemiah. Uh, but I have this slide up here just kind of showing, um, well, let's show the direction. Does it show us north on here? It doesn't. But for those of you who like north to be up, north is up. Okay, so north is up. So it just means to the south of the city is a valley. And to the east of the city is a valley. Now, um, Jerusalem's on a hilltop, uh, multiple hilltops. Think of the hills like being on top of Park Hill. I don't think these are not exactly tall hills. They're not mountains. Um, you want to walk from the Temple Mount okay, down to the valley. I think its elevation changes a couple hundred feet. So it's not huge. Okay? But we'll look at some pictures. So I'm, I'm just kind of getting our minds geared towards a valley to the east, a valley to the south. Um, here's another one, a topographical map that shows that. Um, so the old city of David was on this ridge line here. If you don't know how to read topographical maps, sorry, I don't have time to explain it to you. Um, but if, if you like topographical maps, this will help you. You can see um, you know, Mount Moriah 
and then a ridge line that comes down here, and then steep drop-off indicated by the lines that are closer together, and you've got a valley. And then you've got some steep you know, lines bunched together here. The slope goes back up again. This is the Mount of Olives over here, so just opposite Jerusalem. And, and the Temple Mount was on that old city of David here on this ridge line. And then you have the Valley of Hinnom down below that. So again, you see that drops out. The Valley of Hinnom comes to here. The Kidron Valley uh, merges with it at this location. And you can see drop-off Temple Mount coming down to the Valley of Hinnom when you go south or to the Kidron Valley when you go east. Okay? So here's some pictures of this. This is actually looking... Uh, it's actually... Go back to my previous slide here on the topographical. If you stand over at the V in the word valley and you look eastward, that's what you're looking at here. Uh, so that's, this is the Kidron Valley sloping down to our right. And you're looking straight across the Mount of Olives would be, oops, wrong button. The Mount of Olives, that's a little village over there. Apparently it's called the Silwyn Village, the current village in that area. But the, the Mount of Olives is kind of, you're seeing the edge of it. If you go off the, the edge over to the left, that's the Mount of Olives over there. Okay, so here's another uh, view of that. Um, here's uh, the Temple Mount. There's the Temple. Current uh, next slide, the um, uh, satellite view of the Temple Mount, which has the Dome of the Rock, which is a Muslim mosque that's currently on the site. And okay, then the Kidron Valley goes down. Here's the valley. And then the Mount of Olives has been circled here and identified. The slope would go back up. There's the Mount of Olives. Um, and then, of course, the uh, Valley of Hinnom's over here. Um, this particular map shows a distance of five miles to the little community called Bethany. Uh, here's a verse in the um, Easter story. Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. Um, uh, so where, where Lazarus was, I think I read that wrong. But anyways, he frequently went over there. Sometimes he stayed with Lazarus and his family. Um, it was about a five-mile walk. Uh, from the town of Jerusalem. So in some sense, it's just around the corner uh, from that. Hey, we'll go to this next one, some other information that relates to the, the Easter week. Uh, the month of Nisan, which is the, what the Hebrews called the month, in the year AD 30, we see, and, and uh, I think some of these are kind of dark to read here, uh, but some information on uh, the Passover, uh, which happened at, uh, that week. God had commanded the observance to happen in the month of Nisan. On the 10th day of the month of Nisan, they would select a lamb. On the 14th day, they would sacrifice the lamb. Um, that would begin the Passover. And then the seven days following that, starting with the Passover, they would have Feast of Unleavened Bread. So you read in Exodus uh, some of that information about that, um, which I won't take the time uh, to read right now. Okay, so... This, again, some of the lighting in here, as well as the darkness of the slide, perhaps the quality of the slide, um, uh, makes this a little bit hard to see. Um, in fact, I'm trying to look at this. Okay, I recognize, I had to look at this to figure out what it was. Um, what helped me, okay, that works. That may make it darker for people online, but then you guys aren't looking at me anymore anyways, right? Look at the slide, so that's probably better. Thank you, Jeff, for turning off the lights in the room. Um, actually, um, I recognize where this was. I've, I've gone on Google Earth a number of times in the city of Jerusalem just to check things out, kind of like an inexpensive way to visit the Holy Lands. Um, these right here, these are graves. 
uh, then I immediately said, oh, I know what this is, because there's a grave, a, a mass grave, you can't get in there. Like, if you want to be buried there, and it's not going to happen unless you have certain pedigree as a Jew, because um, a, a lot of priests have been buried here over the millennium. Uh, many of these are above ground uh, grave, little mo- uh, not mosques, um, I can't think of it, uh, mausoleums, I guess, uh, mini mausoleums. Uh, we're looking from the Mount of Olives downward to the Kidron Valley and across the other slope, there's the Temple Mount. And, that, and so here's a verse out of Mark. As they approached Jerusalem, came to uh, Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying, go to the village ahead of you and, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there upon which no one has ever ridden that colt. Bring it to me. And that's where he does the triumphal entry, which is what uh, today is about Palm Sunday. There's a little bit more um, here with this mainly focusing. That's again the Temple Mount, probably standing on uh, Mount of Olives, looking across at it, a little bit different angle. Uh, but we read here on the next day, much people that were come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took uh, branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the King of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. So he would have been coming from Bethany, coming across, uh, heading west towards Jerusalem when. Uh, people did that triumphal entry and threw the palm leaves on the ground. Okay? So, and when he was come, I just continue reading verses here. When he was come, uh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, so now he's descending down that triumphal entry, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. And he was, when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it. Um, traditional site, this is, uh, I think, again, this is looking back from this side, uh, the west side of the Temple Mount, looking towards the Mount of Olives, and apparently there's a traditional site on the slope of the Mount of Olives where he looked across and wept over the city of Jerusalem. So he went, um, then uh, he sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare us a Passover that we may eat. And so they made ready the Passover. Um, The traditional site of the Passover meal happened at this location in down at one of the homes that was there. Okay. And Garden of Gethsemane, I'm looking, I'm, I'm at the next slide that has Mark 14.32 on it. I'm saying that for poor Matt, who's probably trying to keep up with me on which slide I'm on in here. But uh, Mark 14.32, they came to a place which was called Gethsemane. That's located at the bottom of the Mount of Olives, so, um, so it's not very high up, but, but along kind of the slope of that. And uh, he said to his disciples, sit here while I uh, pray. And that's where he um, prayed and where they fell asleep. Um, okay, so there's the Garden of Gethsemane. Okay, and so they led Jesus away when, they, when they, he was arrested in the garden. They led him away, and he was put on trial in uh, the palace of Caiaphas, the high priest, which is located kind of on that same side of town where they had done the Passover this is the traditional site of Caiaphas's palace. Um, all right, I'm going to just skip over some of these. Towards the end of the Easter message, I'm on, skip several ahead there, Matt, uh, to the potter's field um, that shows the kind of the landscape with the rocks. And in Matthew 27, 3, um, Judas, when he betrayed, he went out into that field and hung himself, and that's the traditional site there. And then I'll skip two slides ahead. Um, Maybe I'll skip further than that. Let's go all the way uh, about five slides ahead uh, to, 
there's a, actually a couple burial sites um, that are traditional. There, there's one here, that's where the Catholic Church has built the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. But there's a second possible uh, burial site, which is known as Gordon's Calvary or the Garden Tomb. Uh, this is Gordon's Calvary, which kind of has a look in parts of it. I'll go to the next picture, the second one. Parts of this kind of have a skull-like look, like two eyes, nose, and kind of the shape of a skull. Or even looking up here, could also have like eyes here with a, with a skull, like a head. Perhaps that's where the, the name Calvary comes from, which means place of the skull, Golgotha. So anyways, a little uh, Easter geography for